Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Our topic today is inherently governmental functions, and our sponsor is Skyway Acquisition. If your organization is interested in training from a team of former contracting officers, go to AskSkyway.com and learn more about how Skyway can help both government and industry teams with the acquisition and contract execution process. Okay, let's get right into inherently governmental functions. The government hires a lot of service contractors to support government offices and to help our government run. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. But not everything the government does can be contracted out to a services contractor. The vast majority of things can be and and are done by contractors. But there are some key things that just can't be contracted out. More than 50% of the contracts by the federal government are for service contracts. We're contracting out lots of functions through service contracts. A few of these that can't be done by contractors are called inherently governmental functions. And there's not really a good way to make an acronym out of that unless we call it IG. And to me, that sounds like inspector general, and I can't be saying that all the time. So we'll just keep saying inherently governmental functions throughout this whole episode. (laughs) Yeah, IG was already taken. Tongue twister. The reason this is important is when I was a contracting officer, there were times where a program manager could not attend. A, a meeting and one of the support contractors that supported that program manager, which is systems engineering, technical assistance support, basically support services for, for the government. And so the contractor attends this meeting and because he's there on behalf of he or she is there on behalf of the, the government program manager, the perception is they carry the same weight. And if you don't realize the difference between inherently governmental and not, that can create problems. And that, that's why this is such a big deal. Before we dive into that, let's stop and say thanks. Let's say thanks this week to Andrew Everett from Evertech from San Antonio, Texas. Andrew liked and shared our content, but even more, he gave me 30 minutes of his time to get candid feedback on the podcast through a a contracting officer podcast feedback session. I took two pages of notes from the discussion, and it really validates some of the things that we're doing and also helps us understand some of the things we have to tweak. So that knowledge is huge. So thanks for taking the time to share it. Thanks, Andrew, for helping us get better. Okay, before we get into inherently governmental functions, I want to stop just a second and say, you sound a little funny today, and I can see, because we record these things through Skype, I can see you sitting in your car once again. So if you're listening to the podcast and Kevin sounds a little funny, or you hear bumps and knocks or wildlife or anything like that, it's because he's sitting in his car. Why are you in your car? I, I'm I'm on taking a quote unquote in air quotes vacation with my family <laughs> and uh, the house is a no I'm at my in laws it's a little crazy inside so it's easier to do this outside <laughs> the show must go on right so we fit these in where we can sometimes it's a little tight and I went to a show at the 9:30 club last night and we record these things kind of early so I'm still waiting for the coffee to kick in. <laughs> So there's our disclaimer for today, if this sounds funny or if I can't pronounce inherently governmental function correctly. (laughs) What is an inherently governmental function? Let's talk about where inherently governmental functions are defined. The concept is a statutory definition that was in the, the Federal Activities Inventory Reform Act of 1998 that defines 
an inherently governmental function as a function so intimately related to the public interest as to require performance by federal government employees. Pretty clean when you say it that way. In other words, something only government employees can do, should do, shall do, etc. It sounds like this is a judgment call, and, and technically it is a judgment call because we'll talk about that in far time. But, but there's a more structure to it because they wanted to make sure that people clearly understand this is something only government employees can do, and these are things that contractors can do. The FAR hands us a list. There's a very short list of things that are inherently governmental, and there's a very long list of things that are not generally inherently governmental. We're going to talk mostly about the, the things that are inherently governmental things, and everything else is probably doable by contractors. Here's where we start quoting FAR references at you. This is FAR time. We're at FAR 7.501. This is where it tells you what inherently governmental functions are. It says the purpose of this subpart is to describe policies and procedures to ensure that inherently governmental functions are not performed by contractors. FAR 7.503 goes on to say, in subparagraph A, contracts shall not be used for the performance of inherently governmental functions. And B clarifies what you were talking about before, Kevin, where is it a judgment call whether or not something is inherent or not? 7.503B says agency decisions which determine whether a function is or is not an inherently governmental function may be reviewed and modified by the appropriate Office of Management and Budget officials. So to a certain extent, agencies can make their own decisions on where the line is between inherently governmental and non-inherently governmental services. But OMB can overrule them. There's checks and balances, right? One of the caveats is if it's a personal services contract, which we have a podcast about that. Personal services contracts, the contractors operate as if they're government employees. So like many things, this isn't really linear. It's got a spiderweb feel to it. Paragraph C gets specific about what functions are inherently governmental. It lays out a short list. We're going to talk about an even shorter list. We're cherry picking. Because we don't want this podcast to be an hour long. 7.503C is where you find this list. It's not all inclusive, but it gives you examples that should guide your thinking. And again, agency makes decisions. OMB can overrule them if they think the agency has gone too far. First thing on the list is direct conduct of criminal investigations and prosecutions. So federal prosecutors need to be government employees. Now, there's all kinds of people that support the federal prosecutor in the case that maybe don't have to be, but the actual direct conduct of investigations and prosecutions have to be government employees. Other inherently governmental functions are the command of military forces and federal employees. Federal employees have to report to a government supervisor. They can't report to a contractor supervisor. Makes sense. Same with the direction and control of intelligence and counterintelligence operations and foreign relations, and the determination of foreign policy. So if you think about that, if you're commanding people who are going to fight or spy, or if you are representing the U.S. government in relations with a foreign government or determining foreign policy, you kind of want those people to be actual government employees in order to represent our country. And another inherently governmental function is in paragraph five, it talks about setting agency policy and federal program priorities, deciding what the agency's policy is going to be and how to prioritize the projects, the work, the things that that agency does. That's not something that should be contracted out. 
they're actually pretty logical when you think about the why behind them. So functions that are responsible, directly responsible for executing the government's authority, for making decisions on behalf of the United States government, you want those to be government employees. You should write foreign policy. You wrote it. You said it much more clearly than they did. Okay. <laughs> I will never write foreign <laughs> policy. I can promise you that. <laughs> that will never happen. They would not let me do that. I am so unsuited to that role. Now, paragraph C12 is where the fun stuff starts, the, relevant to this podcast. That's all about federal procurement activities, particularly with prime contract. We pick the ones that are most relevant to acquisition. Reminder, we're at 7503C, and this is subparagraph 12, and this is where you get into the little letters, the, the I, the double I, the triple I. There are many inherently governmental functions in the contracting and procurement world. Participating as a voting member on a source selection board is an inherently governmental function. So selecting who is going to win rating proposals and actually participating in that decision-making process is inherently governmental. Same with approving contractual documents. Like formally documenting a requirement or signing a modification or an incentive plan revaluation criteria, all the formal parts of a, of a government contract. We have a podcast episode called What is a Contracting Officer that talks about a contracting officer's authorities, but those functions, the authority part of the job, is inherently governmental. So FAR 7503C12 IV and VI, <laughs> <laughs> we're way deep in the letters now. So awarding and terminating contracts are inherently governmental functions. You don't want contractors to officially bind the government. It also includes in one of the subparagraphs, administering the contracts. And this doesn't mean administering as in making sure that the process is flowing. It means actually changing the contract. It, it means things like changing contract quantities, taking action based on evaluation of contractor performance, and then accepting or rejecting contractor products or services. In this case, we're talking about an administrative contracting officer. They're saying, no, this is not good enough per the contract. And, and then when they say, no thanks, and send the product back for repair, or when they say, yes, we're accepting it, that can only be made by a government employee because, again, that's you were mentioning that only a government employee can bind the government. Well, in this case, only a government employee can say, okay, we are now unbound because the contract is done. That whole loop has to be done by government people. And administering contracts, this is one, one area where it's kind of fuzzy. The, the the gray it's kind of a gray line between what's inherently governmental and what's not and we'll talk in a minute about how it's different in different places but certain administration functions the ones that bind the government are inherently governmental another inherently governmental function is determining whether contract costs are reasonable allocable and allowable and and this is a particularly interesting one because i as a contracting officer am not very likely to have the expertise from the market about the pricing to say, yeah, that price is fair and reasonable. Somebody's doing that research for me. That may be a government employee. It may be a contractor, but the decision as to whether or not this is actually a reasonable cost, that's going to be made by a government employee. Right. They're, the government employee is going to look at all the data, interpret it, and make a decision based on the data. They may not actually do the data collection. That may be a contractor. If you're participating as a voting member on a performance evaluation board, you're conducting an inherently governmental function. And this could include making a decision on an award fee 
could include whether or not to exercise an option, could include whether or not the, a product is considered uh, acceptable. Past performance, the, the CPARs, Contractor Performance Assessment Reports. If you're executing the government's authority by officially evaluating someone's past performance like that, that's inherently governmental. Yeah, the, per- the person that signs the CPARs, that's a government employee. There are a few other things listed in this section that, that are inherently governmental. I don't want to get into them all today. But I think from the list that we have given, you can see that, again, if you are exercising the government's authority as a representative of the United States government, that is generally inherently governmental. All right, let's talk about the gray line. What is not inherently governmental? The FAR gives you a list under subparagraph D. So, so 7503D is a long list of examples of functions generally not considered to be inherently governmental functions. And it's funny If you're a contracting officer, you're usually taught, if the FAR doesn't say you can't do it, you can do it. But in this case, I think there's been so much confusion, they wanted to spell out some things that are not inherently governmental function to clear the fog a little bit. In other words, these are things that the FAR specifically says, in case you didn't know, you can contract these out. It does clarify that certain services and actions that are not considered to be inherently governmental functions may approach being in that category, being inherently governmental functions, because of the nature of the function and the manner in which the contractor performs that function. So that's where where there's some decision-making involved. It can be easy to slip into this gray area if a contractor is supporting me as a contract specialist, and I ask them to get some information from one of our contractors who's performing under a contract. And that turns into a, hey, can you send us this information or can you submit a proposal Let's be extreme here for, or how about this? Can you submit a, a, a ROM, a rough order of magnitude for th- what it would cost to do this project? They're binding that contractor to do something that's going to cost them money. So one agency where I worked said that those letters will never be sent by anybody except the contracting officer. They can be drafted by the contract specialist as a contractor, but then handed to the contracting officer and then sent. Other agencies, because they felt that it was clear that by giving direction from the contracting officer and because we don't have to accept the proposal and we don't have to cover the cost of the proposal, in that agency, they were okay with it. So it be very aware of when a contractor is sending a letter, what's the consequence of that potentially? And is your agency okay with that? Because you don't want to find out afterwards when the lawyer gives you a, a call, raising my hand, because you did it wrong. That's another episode altogether. What is a ROM? What is a rough order of magnitude? Is it a proposal? Is it not? Do I have to do it if the if the government asks for it? Or can I say no? Can they give me money to do that or not? Let's not Rabbit get into hole. that. Rabbit hole. Let's get back to the FARS definitions of what are not inherently governmental functions. Again, very long list. We're going to abbreviate here. Services that involve or relate to budget preparation – Services that involve or relate to evaluation of another contractor's performance. Contractors that provide technical evaluation of contract proposals. Not inherently governmental. So we just talked about being a voting member on a source selection board. That is an inherently governmental function because you're exercising the authority. You're making the decision. But contractors can provide technical evaluation. They can provide support and get into all the complexities that government employees may not understand well enough to really evaluate. And then it's up to the government people to interpret that information and make a decision. And one underlying theme to that whole conversation is, does that contractor employee have a conflict of interest? Because they're supporting the evaluation of a contract 
that they their company may be competing on for example that's an obvious that's an obvious conflict but that's why we have an episode about organizational conflict of interest is that this is how it happens is you have a contractor supporting you evaluating proposals of their competitors Ooh, that's dicey some other areas that the far felt the need to explain are not inherently governmental are contractors that support acquisition planning contractors that provide assistance in contract management so this is this is what you were talking about before, where a contract specialist may help administer a contract but not actually have the authority to bind the government. It's also not inherently governmental if you're a contractor and you're providing assistance in the development of a statement of work. You're not actually approving that statement of work. You're assisting from a technical perspective or just an administrative perspective. Providing support in preparing responses to Freedom of Information Act requests, not inherently governmental. But making the final decision or determination on what is going to be released under a Freedom of Information Act request, that is inherently governmental. Contractors can provide legal advice and interpretations of regulations and statutes to government officials, but actually cannot make the legal determination. That has to be a government employee. So again, there's a line up to which contractors can support when it comes to exercising the authority of the government, it becomes inherently governmental. And that's where the thinking part comes in because I had a, a lawyer who provided advice and he was a contractor. He wasn't the head lawyer. He was – think of it like a paralegal. He was providing input. But in the emails, if I didn't realize that it says contractor in his email address, I could have taken that as legal direction and said, oh, yeah, this is, this is, this is good to go. And then – during the protest, they say he took direction from a contractor, and it's a downward spiral. So be very aware of, of who's providing the support. He's probably very offended that you called him a paralegal uh, if he's actually a lawyer. But Well, no, I'm just – <laughs> that's, the, that's the analogy. It may, may have been a paralegal. The point is they, they, knew the, they knew the work, but they were a contractor. And I had to make sure that the government lawyer sent me something in writing and said, this is the official legal review of your contract file. And that's what I moved out with. We have as yet failed to mention the time zones, and maybe that's because this is really across the acquisition time zones and the execution time zones. This is the, the entire functioning of our government and the entire acquisition process all the way around the circle that we talked about in the time zone episodes is filled with situations where the government is contracting out for services. Yeah, the, the risk of messing this up doesn't go away no matter which time zone you're in. Right. <laughs> Put it that way. Let's reemphasize why this is so important. Yeah, this concept is really easy to understand, but it can be hard to execute. Because on one hand, the agency can decide what's inherently governmental. And, and some decide, like I mentioned before, some decide contract specialists can be contractors. Some agencies decide that they, that they can't be contractors. The trick here is that the application of these rules, if you're too loose with this and say, oh, hey, okay, anybody can be a contractor, you create – conflicts with not only organizational conflicts of interest, but you also can be outside of the, the, the realm of this law, right? And so in worst case scenario, it can be things like a source selection award can be undermined because you didn't follow the rules and you have people evaluating their competitors and the competitors find out it's a train wreck. So you can't be too loose with how you apply these. At the same time, if you're too strict and say, oh, well, nothing can be contracted out, it all is inherently governmental, then you're missing in the opportunity as an agency to get a lot more work done by using these service contractors. So there's a balance of productivity. How many service contractors do you use versus how many government employees you use? And a lot of times it depends on the 
budget available to that government office, how many, whether they have dollars for government employees or whether they have dollars for service contractors employees, that really influences where that line is between the functions. I keep going back to this contract specialist. When I was a contracting officer at one base, I had three contract specialists that supported me. They were all contractors. At that, in that position, it was a perfectly acceptable way to operate. At another base where I was a contracting officer, they'd have thought that was crazy. <laughs> so, so understand the difference between the agency you're working for and in this case, as a contractor, the agency that you support. Understand how they've chosen to implement these rules. So you just completely went through the point on why the government should care. Know what your agency's policy is. If you're a contractor, know what that agency's policy is so you know whether you're dealing with a government contracting officer or a contractor, contract specialist support person. And like you said, there's a line between creating OCI issues because everybody's a con support contractor and there's nobody there with any authority or on the other side, overworking government employees because you haven't hired service contractors to do services that technically can be done by contractors according to the rules. On the industry side, this is important. I sort of just said it. Do you know what your targeted agency considers inherently government? Do you know how they apply these rules? Because if you provide services, maybe you could provide non-inherently governmental support to them. Maybe if they have government employees doing something, you could say, hey, we could give you people that do that. And it's perfectly okay, according to the rules, for support contractors to do this. And the government may say, okay, we'll give you a contract to do that. Wouldn't that be since, great? Since, you know, since you're an 8A contractor, we give you a direct award. Or you're a hub zone contractor, we can give you a direct right. award. See there. <laughs> we have episodes about those, by the way. Also, if your competitors provide non-inherently governmental support to your target agencies, they may have an organizational conflict of interest. And if you know the rules, they may not be allowed to be a competitor on some things. So make sure that you understand by agency, by office, what the, your customer's definition of inherently governmental is. All right, I have said inherently governmental too many times, so let's wrap this up, Kevin. You got to know what it is and what it isn't. I mean, knowing what your agency, and particularly your target agency, considers inherently governmental to be is a key factor in how successful you're going to be from managing your contracts. Knowing who can do what and who has the authority helps you understand who the deciders really are. We did an episode about the three deciders. Those three deciders, they're all government employees. Right. <laughs> and we talked about contracting officer and, and contracting officer technical representative, contracting officer representative, core, COTAR, authorities. Those are inherently governmental roles because they provide direction and they make decisions on behalf of the government. Industry has to be cautious about accepting direction from non-inherently governmental representatives. So that's where you're talking about your contract specialists that were support contractors can't give direction. The support staff in the program office, if the, the core or COTAR is not at a meeting and the support staff says, let's do this. Industry has to be cautious about doing that because it's not formal direction until the COTAR or the contracting officer, someone with that authority, provides that direction. That's why it's important to di differentiate. Some, some agencies will put the word contractor in someone's email address so they know that they're a contractor. Sometimes the badges are different colors. Yep. You can make this obvious, but other times they're not. Other times I've, I've been in meetings where I realize – wait a minute, you're a contractor. This is awkward. <laughs> you know, it's a, in fact, there was one moment where, oh, you're a contractor for this company, which I had a source selection going with them on a different, with a different customer. Really awkward. 
So make sure that you understand where those lines are and who is what. And that sums it up. Let's stop talking before your battery dies. What what percentage are you at now? 6%. 6%. All right, just we in time. Before, that's right, just in time. All right, I'll talk to you later, Kevin. All right, see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. If you need help sorting through inherently governmental functions, go to askskyway.com and learn how Skyway can help. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.